Hello, Husky fans! This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to another episode of Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into the greatest UConn basketball teams of all time. And uh, I have to say, last week's episode, um, not my finest hour as far as debate club theatrics go, but, you know, in the end, 2009 was uh, was the juggernaut we all thought they were, and uh, the number three seed is moving on. Uh, they ended up winning, and I have to admit, uh, in a closer margin than I expected. Uh, it was 85-15 to 15, uh, over the 14-seed 2003 team. Uh, Tim, I have to say, I was shocked it wasn't in the 90s, but it turns out that maybe we didn't quite give the 03 team as much respect as they deserved. Yeah, apparently that team has a lot more love than than we thought i mean obviously they were a really solid team and we talked about that last week but yeah some people that we thought would for sure go 09 were going 03 which i thought was really surprising yeah well you know what i i guess nostalgia is a hell of a thing and uh that's good because we're gonna have a whole bunch of nostalgia here today um so tim i think 2006 versus 94 was like the big banger of this round i think this one might be close so today we're going to be talking about the 1996 Big East champion team led by Ray Allen uh, up against the 1990 Dream Season team who were the UConn's first breakthrough, uh, you know, they're basically the team that put UConn on the map, uh, you know, won the Big East championship for the first time, reached the Elite Eight, you know, basically, you know, came within like a Christian Leitner buzzer beater of, you know, advancing to the Final Four. And uh, all around, just two awesome teams that are beloved and, uh, be interesting to see how this goes because um, obviously 90s Twitter is very strong, but these are two of 90s Twitter's favorite teams. So it'll be interesting to see where the battle lines are drawn. Um, so Tim, real quick before we get into the thing, you'll, you'll be defending the 96 team. I've got the Dream Season team. What, what do you what do you make of these two teams in general and of the this matchup as a whole? I'm really excited for this one. These are two teams that, you know, they're obviously not national championship teams, but these are teams when we talk about the path that UConn men's basketball has taken to the elite level that it's risen to these are two of the early major chapters the dream season obviously was incredible and very nearly became the first final four in 96 you know the famous the famous Ray Allen shot and you know this is another team that what could have been and of course you know down the line that ended up really not mattering as much given uh, some vague some vacating of results, but still an unbelievable team that again was laying the framework for what came a couple years later. Yeah. It's so funny. Like I think this is the seven versus 10 matchup. And when you think about it, that's like kind of crazy. Like these two teams are awesome. And it just kind of goes to show you that like, you know, outside of maybe like the, you know, the top two or three, you know, seeds that we have in this game, like pretty much four through what, like 12, I mean, they're, they're like, you have a really, like, a good debate to be had over any of them being anywhere in that range. And these two teams, like, they're so much fun. We, you know, we have such great, well, you know, the people who were there at the time have so such great memories. And obviously, those of us who are a little younger have such a great time kind of reflecting on kind of what these teams meant. And, you know, I really enjoy watching these teams. Like, last year, I always looked forward to Dream Season team, you know, episodes because, I mean, you talk about a team that's aged well. I mean, the brand of basketball that team played was just, like, just so fun. And the 96 team, obviously, anytime you get to watch, like, college Royale and just totally destroying people, knowing, like, oh, yeah, that's, that's like, a legitimate future NBA Hall of Famer. Like, it's a good time. It's what you want. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, what was probably worth just jumping right in. So uh, the 96 team um, 
tell us all about it. What, what do people who uh, weren't there need to know about the 96 uh, UConn men's basketball team? This team was really freaking good. That's one of the things you need to know about this team. Uh, final record of 32-3. and They made it to the Sweet 16. Really should have gone further. Um, won the Big East regular season. Won the Big East tournament. I mean, they were just dominant, dominant throughout the regular season. Um, and no wonder when you look at when you look at the roster. I mean, obviously, we've we've talked about the '94 team, the '95 team, and you know what Ray Allen was and what he could become. And junior year, Ray Allen was really something, wasn't he? Uh, obviously, the leader on this team: twenty-three point four points, six point five rebounds, three point three assists. Um, and behind him, you know, the rest of the starting lineup, it was a consistent starting five the entire year. Um, three guys started all three games and the, the ones who didn't, um, Kirk King started 34 to 35, Travis Knight started 33. Um, but Rudy Johnson and Jerome Sheffer also started every game, just a really consistent, really solid starting five. Those guys were all great producers. Obviously, Daron Sheffer, we talk about him as the distributor. He led the team with 6.1 assists, but he also had 16 points and he had 4.8 rebounds. Um, Kirk King was just right at 10 points, 9.9, uh, his average for the season, uh, 6.3 points. Uh, Travis Knight, of course, has really, by this point, emerged as a key contributor, especially as, as the big man for this team, 9.1 points. 9.3 rebounds, and obviously he went on the following year to go to the NBA, had a, you know, a really solid career, and he was outstanding this year. He also averaged two blocks uh, per game during that season. Um, Rudy Johnson also 7.5 points, 2.7 rebounds, 1.7 assists. And behind them, you got solid contributions from uh, you know, a couple freshmen who would go on to be key members of a national championship team, and Roshmel Jones and Ricky Moore both uh, played some solid minutes throughout the year. Um, you know, this is a team that really went about eight deep. So Jones and Moore coming off the bench as those six and seven guys was really huge. And then you had Eric Hayward, who played every game, averaged about 15 minutes, uh, put together 3.3 points and 3.3 boards. Um, and again, this this team just was something else. You know, they, they opened the season with uh, a trip to the Great Alaska Shootout. And there they pick up one of their very few losses on the season. They they open the season with a 102-76 win against TCU, uh, but then they get tripped up by Iowa, who was number 10 at the time. It was a six-point loss in overtime, um, but then they they just go on a tear. I mean, they're they're beating everyone. The next like the very next day, they go out. They beat Indiana, who was 23 at the time, 86 to 52. I mean, just steamrolling people. And then you just look and you keep going down. Just a slew of Dominant, dominant victories. I mean, some of these scores are ridiculous. And, I mean, obviously, beating up on the little guys, you know, Hartford 102 to 63. They beat Central Connecticut 116 to 46 at Gamble. Just, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> just, I mean, it was like, it was like they swapped out with the UConn women's team and just, you know, ran wild for a day. Um, and again, just th- you you look after that. I mean, as they get to the end of this twenty three game winning streak, you know, seventy seven fifty nine at Rutgers, seventy seven sixty three at St. John's, ninety nine to seventy seven over Providence, you know, eighty seven to sixty nine over West Virginia, eighty five to sixty five over Notre Dame. Uh, then they lose by twelve to Georgetown, who was number eleven at the time. Lose them on the road, and you know, after that they 
they close out the regular season an 11-point win over number four Villanova on the road. Uh, they come back, they beat Rutgers, Seton Hall, wrap up the regular season title at 17-1. and uh, And then they, you know, they roll through the first two rounds of the Big East tournament, beat Seton Hall by 21, beat Syracuse by 18. Uh, Syracuse was number 13 at the time, and then you have the legendary game against number six Georgetown, um, Ray Allen versus Allen Iverson. And just one of the all-time great Madison Square Garden games, one of the all-time great Big East tournament games, and one of the biggest moments in UConn history when Ray Allen drives to the rim, you know, drives one-on-one against Iverson in the final seconds and throws up a floater and, sure enough, gets the bucket to go. UConn wins by one to win the sec- their second Big East tournament title, their first since the dream season. Um, and then, you know, going to the NCAA tournament and, you know, Beat Colgate by they were the number one seed in uh, in their region, um, understandable number one in the southeast. So they beat Colgate. They only beat them by nine, a bit surprising. But then they go on, they win by fourteen against Eastern Michigan, and then their season comes to a really surprising end in a sixty to fifty five loss against Mississippi State, where it just looks like when you look back and you look at the box score, the shots were just not falling for this team on that day. I mean, it was. It was pretty shocking to look, and, you know, you're trying to figure out what went wrong at Rupp Arena that day. And, you know, Mississippi State had a couple of really solid performances from, you know, guys including like Eric Dampier, who's a familiar name, um, old NBA, I believe. Um, but, you know, Ray Allen goes 9 for 25. Daron Sheffer, 3 for 14. Uh, Allen still ends up with um, 22. He had 22 points, but still, um, you know, between Sheffer going 3 for 14 and, you know, Rashmal Jones coming off the bench and only going one for five. This team total on the night shot 32.4%, which was very out of character for a UConn team that was one of the top scoring teams in the country. They were, uh, sorry, I just lost my place. They were 15th in scoring on the season at 82.6 points per game. They held opponents to 64.7, so even under their average in that game, but it just didn't work out. They, look, they averaged victory by 18 points on the season. They were one of the best three-point shooting teams in the country. They were one of the best shooting teams overall. They had one of the best defensive teams in the country. They were fifth in defensive field goal percentage. And, you know, it just it just fell apart in that one game. And, of course, you know, we can talk about what could have happened, but what did happen is the NCAA tournament results ended up being vacated. So as far as I'm concerned, we didn't lose to Mississippi State. Yeah, no, it's – this is this is a really <laughs> tough one to, to, like, look at. Just, like – this box score is insane, and it's it's it goes to show you like, first of all, college basketball is weird, and like weird things like this can happen sometimes. But man, like, how do you think this team would be remembered? Like, even if they won this game and lost in the Elite Eight, like, they they probably they're probably talked about and looked at totally differently, right? Like, the fact yeah. that they lost this game in the Sweet Sixteen is like actually kind of one of the strangest and most insane things. Like, I don't know, it's. It, it defies explanation. Like, how on earth yeah. does a team with Ray Allen, Deron Sheffer, Travis Knight, Kirk King, and Rudy Johnson go 22 for 68 from the field? That's that is just bonkers. I, I don't know how it's it happened. If I was if I was a fan of if I was like paying attention and you know not six years old at the time, I would have been furious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, credit to Mississippi State. They made it to the Final Four that year. And you talk about losing in the Elite Eight. I'd almost rather have lost here because the team they would have lost to in the Elite Eight would have been Cincinnati. And given the last few years, I wouldn't have want that hanging over, 
you know, them being able to dangle that over us, even though they really don't have much room to talk about anything. No, but, well, I know. mean, obviously, if they'd made the Elite Eight and played Cincinnati, they would have won. Yeah, they and then won then, U- then UConn and UMass would be in the we had our Final Fours vacated club, and you know, yeah, yeah. you know, you know how much UMass fans care about that? Not at all. Not that, at all. They 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 wear that they wear that Final Four proudly and pretty much just ignore the fact that the NCAA but what even I, I actually have to confess I, I'm not actually totally up to speed what even happened like why what was like some kind of recruiting violation or something this I is, think it was just some impermissible benefits I can't remember entirely but it, it revolved around um, some like um, I'm just checking real it's, quick, it's really it was, not uh, that big a deal I'm just thinking it, like, it really wasn't it was just like you know they uh, you know they just had a uh, had a situation pop up it was uh it was just a couple of recruiting violations and the punishment was um it was literally just like it was telephone calls and text messages and uh or actually no i'm sorry i'm getting my i'm getting my wires crossed i'm thinking about the other one but yeah <laughs> that sounds um, like too that sounds like nate miles to be honest but yeah yeah that, that was nate miles uh, all right it's, yeah it, carry on <laughs> either way we, we don't it's not a big deal we don't really care that much but uh no. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's just a just an unbelievable uh, kind of team, though. I was just looking through the through their record. They were ranked in the top ten the whole season, and mostly in the top five. Um, yeah. You know, only a couple teams. UConn's only had a couple teams like this. I think actually the 2006 team was another one. Uh, 99, obviously. Two. I think 2004. I don't know. Was 2004 in the top five the whole season too? They may have actually fallen out because of the because uh, of like they had a couple early losses, right? Yeah, I think they may have. But uh, so I mean, yeah. they were pretty much coast to coast. Yeah. So I mean, it's funny. Like this team, this '96 team, is like legitimately one of UConn's best teams ever. And it's just like, oh, I, I'm sorry, 04 didn't. I'm sorry. They were like they fell as far as nine. That's but that's that what was, I thought, that yeah. was it. Yeah. So this team, actually, this team, the lowest they got was nine two. But then they were pretty much uh, from like January onwards, they were in the top five the whole rest of the yeah. way. Man, even when they lost late in the season, when they lost to Georgetown, they fell from number three to number four, and then the very next week they were number three again. Yeah, for sure. So um, let's let's um, you know, obviously we don't want to harp on Mississippi State because that was a bummer, but like this team had some great moments. Uh, I think obviously the Georgetown game in the in Madison Square Garden was really the the highlight of this year. Uh, we we did an episode on this a while back, but uh, in any case, just. Uh, Tim, what do you tell us? Uh, I mean, just to, to the best of your knowledge, tell us about that that game in particular, and uh, you know, just how how it played out, and just how how awesome it was for UConn to finally get that <laughs> get over that hump again. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, for me, you know, I was you know having not really gone back and watched the whole thing before. It's uh, you know, it's something that I don't really know how the whole game went, but just knowing how those two teams were. And knowing how good they both were that season, it was, and you know, just from you know the tales that we hear from, uh, you know, growing up UConn fans or becoming UConn fans, you just hear about what a back and forth game it was, and how you know how it was just two incredible teams and two incredible stars between um, between Ray Allen and Allen Allen Iverson. I'm getting my Allens jumbled up there, and you know they. You know, both teams had tons of NBA talent. Both teams were just really good all year long, had played really good games. And that shot is really just what everyone remembers. That'll be that's the moment that lives on from that game is, you know, Ray Allen throwing the ball up and kinda looked like, you know, when he was going up, it was like his legs were kinda kicking a little bit. He was just like, you know, shuffling his legs back and forth as he was jumping up in the air over Iverson and the ball just kinda hung up and fell in and 
we have one of the great moments in UConn history. Yeah. Yeah. That was just, uh, I mean, it, it's crazy that that was the shot. Like Ray Allen, yeah. as we know, is just like in one of the greatest shooters ever. And, you know, in college, he was known for being a great scorer, a great slasher. And that shot was like a terrible shot. Like it's kind of a miracle <laughs> it went in really, if we're being honest. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, One thing that stuck out to me about that game when I rewatched it was that Ricky Moore, of all people, just went off. He was an, he was awesome in that game, like offensively, defensively, the whole nine yards. I mean, frankly, it was kind of a preview of you know some of the stuff he would pull in the championship season. But um, I don't know. It's just wild to think, like, this is a guy who then and pretty much now is always regarded as this great defensive specialist. And yet every time I did, like, you know, the first two months of this podcast, I would, like, watch him play. I'm just like, Ricky Moore just scored 15 or 20 points. Like, like why don't people <laughs> think that he was, like, a great scorer? Like, just had a knack for coming up with those kind of plays. Um, yeah, so anyway, Ray Allen, I think we should probably di- dive deeper into. So we've done... Uh, his other two teams already so 94 obviously he was a freshman didn't really he didn't start he wasn't quite Ray Allen yet and then 95 he really kind of leveled up and became the guy this year I mean now he's like like the guy so what tell tell us I guess uh the the Ray Allen report here and kind of what people should know about 96 Ray Allen compared to some of the past versions we've talked about yeah in the past we've talked about you know the, the skills that he had as he was, you know, as he was coming through at UConn, you know, like you just talked about the slashing, you know, he loved to drive to the rim. He wasn't the, the great three point shooter. Um, like he wasn't, he wasn't a bad three point shooter, but he wasn't the all time greatest in NBA history by this point. Um, but it's just every year got better. And, you know, the skills that we've talked about, they just progressed year over year. And then by 96, he was just dominant. He had been first team all Big East the year before. You knew the talent was there for sure. Uh, but 96, he became Big East player of the year. He was a consensus first team all American. Um, and obviously, this ended up being his last year at UConn. He took advantage of being a potential lottery pick. And sure enough, he got picked fifth overall. But, you know, all the skills just really came together uh, for this 96 season. And he. Yeah, we talked about uh, some of the great UConn dominant players in uh, of the '90s. And, you know, we talked about Danielle Marshall a couple of weeks ago and his Big East Player of the Year run, which I believe was the year before, right? '95, '94, and '94. Uh, oh my God, they're all like all three of those teams were just ridiculously good. Um, but this really came together, and you know, I talked about like he wasn't like the great three point shooter um, in college so much you know he loved to drive he loved to slash he still shot 46.6 percent from beyond the three-point line during this season he was he took about seven threes per game he hit a little over three of them um and you know still like you knew you knew that was there and obviously he goes on to become one of the all-time greats and um just you know between he was obviously the leading scorer he was the go-to guy on offense but pulled down six and a half rebounds he distributed the ball well he was, uh, you know, obviously he's not Jerome Sheffer distributing, but he's still, you know, when everyone's trying to lock him down, you know, someone gets open and he's able to average just over three assists per game and really, really solid defensively too. He was averaging 1.7 steals in, uh, in uh, this season on the defensive end. So really just a solid all-around player and incredible dominant season from him. Definitely. And I feel like we should probably dive a little deeper into Duran Shefford, too, because he's like been a huge part of UConn's history at this point now, too. It's his senior year. He's yeah. been a starter for, you know, all, all three of these mid 90s, just like 
this this epic run they had in the middle of that decade. So, um, you know, Kevin Ollie obviously has moved on by this point. So Duran's really the guy at point guard now. So what was his, uh, you know, what was his game by this point? And uh, kind of how, how, what did he become by now? Well, he was already the, the primary distributor for this team. You know, he was kind of quarterbacking the offense and, you know, racking up assists left and right. But he even added to that in 96. His average went up by like an assist per game. And with, you know, with Kevin Ollie gone and with a couple other guys gone, he really took advantage and, you know, added being the second leading scorer on the team to his arsenal. His average went up by, you know, about five points per game. Um, he became really important as a secondary scorer to Ray Allen, um, especially with guys behind him weren't really, really scorers. So it fell to him to be, you know, to be that secondary guy. And he stepped up in a big way. No, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know, anything else we need to discuss with 96 before we uh, dive into the dream season? Um, I, I just think they were consistently good. And, you know, there, was, there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a lot of shuffling of the lineup or anything. It was consistent. It was the same five guys on the floor at the start of every game. And you had the three key guys coming off the bench. They had scores. They had size. They moved the ball well. I mean, just all around an unbelievable team. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's talk about another unbelievable team. Uh, I think personally, this might be my favorite like 90s UConn team just in terms of just kind of their story and kind of the whole vibe that they had. I could you imagine being a fan of this team in 1990? Like, I can't even imagine just how cool it would have been because by the time we came along, you know, UConn had already established itself as a national brand and, you know, a multi-time national champion. But that was not the case here. In 1990, UConn men's basketball was kind of, I mean, frankly, a bottom feeder in the Big East. That's how they spent the whole, like, the whole decade in the 80s, just basically just getting pounded by St. John, Syracuse, and, you know, Georgetown and teams like that. They they were nobody's idea of a contender. And, you know, sure, they won the NIT in 1988, but, like, that was a really cool mo- moment. But at the end of the day, it, w- it was still the NIT. It's not like they were necessarily, like, a real serious, like, championship contender. And then this team comes along, and everything changed. I mean, my God, like, it, it happened, like, sneakily and then it just snowballed and really turned into an avalanche so you start the season off and the UConn is unranked because of course they are there's no reason why anybody would have expected them to have been ranked at this point and they actually lose their opening game uh they lose to Texas A&M by like uh, 11 points and then you know okay you pick up a nice win against Auburn you you beat Florida State so looking okay there a couple of good wins out of conference then you end up losing a to Villanova in the um in their first Big East game so of course, even back then, even in their best years, you're, you're losing your Big East Conference opener. So some things truly have never changed. Um, but then, you know, then whatever, like the season kind of goes along. You get a nice win over St. Joseph's, Mississippi State. You know, all of a sudden, hey, look, the team's 9-2. and two. That's not bad, right? Okay, we play at St. John's and get absolutely smoked. 93-62, to 62, same old UConn, right? And uh, then, then it starts to flip. UConn proceeds to run off 10 straight wins, and that streak includes two of the biggest regular season wins that UConn had ever had up to that point. Actually, I think it's probably safe to say these were the two biggest at that point. So on January 15th, UConn uh, hosts Syracuse, number five ranked Syracuse, and beats them 70 to 59. I mean, that was big time. Less than a week later, January 20th, number two Georgetown comes to town. 
They beat them that 70 to 65. And then about a week later, UConn welcomes number 15 ranked St. John's to Harry A. Gamble Pavilion for opening night. First game ever at Gamble Pavilion, and they beat him 72 to 58. So, oh my goodness, this we we have ourselves a real story now. U- UConn has got their brand new stadium is all finished. You know they've now beaten all three of the Big East like big you know championship you know Goliaths in less than two weeks at home, and now all of a sudden UConn stands there at 16 and three, and uh, wow, what a story! And, you know, it pretty much just keeps snowballing from there. Uh, UConn would end up losing uh, a couple more games before the regular season was done. But they end up finishing the year 24-5 uh, and five heading into the Big East tournament. And uh, they capped it off with a really nice uh, 95-74 win uh, at Boston College to send them into the TD, uh, to the TD Garden. My God. <laughs> I just watched the Celtics get their, their the doors blown off last night uh, into Madison Square Garden. Um, that was that was terrible. I'm gonna leave that in there though, cause you know, so everyone knows how I'm feeling this Memorial Day. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, UConn goes into the the Madison Square Garden riding high, and they take care of business. Uh, Seton Hall beat them 76-58. Georgetown, the rematch, beat them 65 to 60. And uh, Syracuse, they get them for their very first ever Big East championship. Uh, 78 to 75. So they win the regular season title, win the tournament title, and um, like yeah, we're we're really in business now. And the uh, NCAA tournament was a lot of fun too. You know, you, you get a good. You start with Boston University. You get you, you beat them by uh, 24 there. Uh, you get the university. You know, Cal Berkeley beat them by 20, 74, 54, and then you get Clemson. Um, a game I think that we've all heard of. A game that I think. This game went down a lot differently than I realized. Um, UConn, frankly, should have lost this game. <laughs> Clemson, uh, you know, Clemson—they—they they were like UConn was totally in control for a lot of the game, and then Clemson totally just flipped it on them, uh, came all the way back, and UConn ended up having to. Uh, well, frankly, they were in a desperate situation. They were down by one and had not not very much time left on the clock, and. Well, uh, you, you remember it as the Tate George shot, but basically uh, Scott Burrell just heaved it with his old quarterback background uh, across, hit a perfect strike to Tate George in the corner, and uh, Tate puts it up for the buzzer beater, and UConn advances to their first Elite Eight, and it was, um, I mean, now not only are we, like, not only is this just, like, a crazy season, now this is, like, a legitimate team of destiny, and uh, that's it sure looked like that against Duke. They played Duke in the Elite Eight, and take them to overtime, and frankly, they almost got them too. And then Christian Leitner, as he was wont to do, he kind of, da- you know, hit him with the dagger at the buzzer, and that was that. But I mean, you want to talk about like just amazing like roller coaster seasons with drama and just intrigue and just vastly exceeding expectations. I mean, it it doesn't get much better than this. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so let's let's talk, so yeah, so UConn ends the season that they started unranked. They finished the season ranked four in the final AP poll, and uh, they suddenly, you know, after after they took care of uh, Georgetown and Syracuse uh, in January, they just kept on flying up the rankings from there. So uh, so who's on this team? Uh, you'll probably uh, be familiar with some of these guys. Uh, Scott Burrell obviously was most recently uh, in the news last year around this time um, for his appearances in The Last Dance as a uh, kind of Michael Jordan's whipping boy, but. Uh, before before that, he was uh, you know one of UConn's like great at, like all around athletes. 
and uh, was a really key contributor to this team. He was uh, 8.2 points, 5.5 rebounds, 1.8 assists, and uh, just a real awesome player. Uh, you have Chris Smith, who to this day remains uh, UConn's all-time leading scorer. He's been a, a guest to this podcast a couple times. Super nice guy, really just an amazing player. 17.2 points, uh, 2.5 rebounds, 3.6 assists. Really, um, I would describe him as a really modern player too because he was a great. He was comfortable knocking down threes in an era where not really too many guys did it. Uh, you have Nadav Hedefeld, who was just a just a beast. Came out of Israel, and it, this is, uh, I guess, not a one and done in the traditional modern sense. But in his only year at UConn, he was amazing. You know, eleven point six points, five point six rebounds, two point nine assists, and uh, a whole heap and load of steals. Uh, I mean, defensively, this guy was just a monster. He just brought a different level of toughness and. Just, you know, basketball IQ that really helped this team. Uh, Tate George, uh, we mentioned before, he was uh, he was great. Um, 11.5 points, 3.5 rebounds, 4.8 assists. Uh, you have John Gwynn. He's uh, another guy in the backcourt, 10.6 points, a um, couple rebounds, a uh, couple assists. Um, Rod Sellers, he was kind of one of their big men. He was uh, also 8.2 points, 5.3 rebounds. So it was like kind of an interesting dynamic where they didn't really have like a traditional center like in their starting lineup. But between Sellers and Burrell, who are just such crazy athletes, and you know Nadav was kind of like a like a big three or whatever. Just those guys. I mean, the athleticism and the defense that this team brought was just out of control. And then you know they had a, a you know great bench too. Dan Cerulek was this team's proper center. He came off the bench and averaged three point eight re- uh, points, three point five rebounds. Lyman DePriest, uh, three point two points, two point six rebounds. Murray Williams, uh, Torino Walker. You know those that was kind of uh, they kind of rounded out the primary rotation. But these guys could get after it defensively. They could wear you down. They were you know just a really fun team to watch on offense. Uh, just, um, I highly recommend watching their games. They've aged fantastically. This team, it's it's really so fun to watch them play, and uh, I mean, just some of the the games they played and just the the wins they picked up, and you know, they they blazed the trail. This this is where it all began. So, I I uh, be very interested in seeing how kind of people weigh this team against some of the more like so the '96 team, for instance, and if you know whoever advances, I guess how they would fare against some of the 2000 teams, but. I love this team so much. It's such a fun team. So, yeah. So that's uh, that's that's where we're at with that. What do you what do you, what do you think of the '90 team and uh, kind of just the whole the whole vibe that they have and their legacy? Well, you just said something that kind of rang true for me when you know I grew up on you know I I was born in the early '90s and I started going to games in 1999. And as you got in, as I got into the late '90s and I was learning about UConn basketball. You know, I wasn't, you know, I was still young and I wasn't necessarily learning about the 96 team and the Ray Allen floater over Allen Iverson. I wasn't, you know, I was still like a year away from knowing what was going on in 98 when they had the Rip Hamilton shot. But when I started going to games and, you know, my family started teaching me about UConn basketball, the first name that really stuck in my head was Tate George because you learned about the Tate George shot right away and, you know, what it meant and, you know, what it did for this program and obviously you know he put the shot up but you know i'm glad he mentioned scott burrell because it's nothing without the pass and burrell was fantastic and you know one of the lovable guys of course the what was it the arm bar against christian leitner like pinning him to the ground in the duke game is still an iconic shot or was that rod seller to be mixing them up um this whole team i mean I remember when I was at Campbell after the 99 championship, you know, Calhoun was talking about this team and he mentioned all of these guys and 
the place the place just roared as he mentioned every single name all from like Lyman to Priest and the Dove Hannafel to John Gwynn. I mean, they, this is such a universally beloved UConn team, and I, I, this is like you said, it's the team that started it all. Um, so this is like this team means something to me because when I when I started learning about UConn basketball, this was you know this is chapter one. This is this is where you start. This was this was a special special team, and they really. They started laying the groundwork for what would become an incredible decade of UConn basketball. And another thing, you mentioned Nadav Hennefeld being a beast stealing the ball. How many teams do you see averaging 13.1 steals per game? Not very many. I mean, look, I, I, you said that, and I was like, wow. Like, And I looked, he had 3.7 steals, but then I'm like, huh, there are a lot of high numbers here. And I looked, hey, George had two per game. Chris Smith had 1.7. Scott Burrell, 1.9. Um you know, a couple guys coming off the bench with Murray Williams and Lyman DePriest each averaging one per game. Um, John Gwynn and Rod Sellers were both, like, right there, uh, right under one per game. I mean, that is ridiculous. Between, you know, having a combination of 13.1 steals and 16.2 assists, I mean, that is obnoxious. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm looking at their totals now. Hennefeld had 138 steals that season. <laughs> like, are you serious? Like, that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> that's... That's incredible. <laughs> it, yeah, this team, this team was just a, this team was a blast. You know, I, yeah. I, for for everybody listening, if you guys, obviously, you should all all be on UConn Husky Games. It's a great website, great, just great resource, and I highly recommend going back and watching the the Dream Season game against uh, St. John's, the the first game ever at Gamble. A um, couple of reasons why. One, it's just so funny how. It's not like nothing has changed as far as like the Gamble basketball experience. Like you, you watch like like the the whole vibe, the whole. I mean, actually, frankly, some of the soundtrack, like just all the chants. It's like wow. It was like you can go to a game at Gamble. Well, I mean, pre-pandemic and hopefully post-pandemic, you can go to a game at Gamble, and it's like fundamentally the same experience as like our parents had in 1990, which is unbelievable. And it's like you watch this game, and you're like, oh, but this is like all brand new right now. Like this is the first time that any of this was happening. So, I don't know, it's just a lot of fun. Also, if you're a Celtics fan, it's funny that Mike Gorman, the uh, Celtics play-by-play guy, was doing the commentary for that game, too, which is, uh, when I discovered that, I was like, oh my god, this is this is so great. It's like I'm watching a Celtics game or something, except it's a 1990 <laughs> UConn basketball game. Uh, yeah, no, good times with that. Um, so, yeah, so I suppose we should try to d- decide, like, you know, how this game would go, because I, I, I can just say that th- these two teams are both really tough. And I think there would be a lot of uh, a lot of bruises and a lot of bruised egos by the end of this game because they would beat the crap yeah. out of each other. Uh, yeah, I think slugfest is a really good way to describe what this game would be. Yeah, I mean, the 1990 team defensively might be the most terrifying defensive team UConn's ever fielded. I mean, they they pressed. They that was their whole deal. Like they they made it really tough on teams. So they, that would make them a uniquely tough matchup. And then just the whole the, the Hennefeld thing. Like I, I don't think it can be overstated. Like. You know, no matter how good an offensive team you are, if the other team has a guy who's just stealing the ball four times every game or more, just just one guy specifically, I mean, that's that's going to screw you up. So, do how how do we feel that '96 would handle the uh, the '90 team's defense and just the the whole, you know, just turnover factory that they were? What do you what do you how do you feel like that would manifest itself in this matchup? Well, the turnover factory would certainly be a problem. Um, but if you can avoid having the ball stolen, one, good luck. But, you know, I think 
the the ability for this team to get inside would be a huge advantage, especially when you got the when you've got a seven footer like Travis Knight, six nine Kirk King, but having Ray Allen and Jerome Sheffer who are able to drive and get to the bucket, um, and a stretch guy like Rudy Johnson, I think they'd be able to open the floor up enough where they can, you know, they can move the ball around without it getting stolen and then get to the rim and, you know, get some easy buckets against a team that, you know, defensively terrifying, but they will have the 96 team will have a bit of a size advantage. Um, so, you know, hopefully they can just open them up like that. And then, you know, this is a team that can also get out and run just like all the UConn teams of the nineties. So if Sheffer and Allen can start leading some fast breaks and start just trying to beat, beat 90 up the floor, then they can really do some damage that way too. So I feel like in this matchup, you're Ray Allen and Hennefeld, I feel like is probably going to be the matchup. I mean, you would think yeah. like Hennefeld would be the obvious candidate to try to guard Ray Allen. I mean, he's, he's actually a little bit taller than Ray and uh, just, I mean, he's their best defensive player by a mile, really. So, like, how do you feel like, you know, obviously Ray Ray is an amazing player. So th- this is a fascinating one. How do, how do you feel this one would go down uh, with, you know, Ray versus Nadav? <laughs> um, well, for Ray offensively, it's obviously going to be tough against such an unbelievable defensive player. Um, and if if Dove can take him out of the game, then that's a huge advantage for 90. And I think that that turns the game. So, um, but you know, Alan Ray Allen's no stranger to that. Just ask Allen Iverson, um, uh, a fantastic player in his own right. Um, obviously a much more successful career after college than the Duff NFL, but just two unbelievably talented players. Um, I think Allen, has proven that he can he can take control of games even against the best defensive players and if he can do that and he can get you know if he can produce a twenty point game then that's obviously huge advantage for ninety six but you know even if they can't get him the ball all the time you know Jerome Sheffer's running point on this team and he's able like I've I've called him a quarterback before he's able to you know he's able to find other players and they'll be able to they'll be able to do damage even if Ray Allen's not able to get the ball on every possession. You know, Sheffer is a capable scorer in his own right, uh, and he's able to move the ball to guys like Johnson and King and Knight. And they'll be able to find ways to the hoop even if Allen is, you know, somewhat taken out of the game by Hennefeld. Yeah, maybe. And, uh, I, yeah, so the size advantage you, you do mention is, is interesting because, like, so uh, 96 is backcourt. Ray Allen and Duran Sheffer are both 6'5". And uh, for ninety, for ninety, uh, Tate George is also six five. So I, I guess he would probably match up with Sheffer. You would think. Chris Smith is only six three. So that I guess that would be like you know, do you put Chris? Maybe maybe Chris does spend a little bit of time on Ray Allen, or does he? Maybe do you just try your luck with? I don't. Maybe Nadav goes on Rudy Johnson. I don't know because here because yeah. here's a, yeah because here's the thing. So Rudy Johnson I guess qualifies as as a three for ninety six. He's six six. Right. So. You know, there's like a version of this where like you either have somebody a little bit smaller on him, or you could end up having either Rod Sellers or, or uh, you know, Scott Burrell on him. I mean, <laughs> it's it's funny. Like Travis Knight, I guess you probably need Sellers on Travis Knight. I mean, Sellers yeah. is is like three inches shorter, but I mean that dude, that was a bad dude. So I I, 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 would, <laughs> I would trust Rod Sellers in that matchup. And then you, you know, talked about bruises after this game. Uh, Travis Knight would be covered in them. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, look, Travis Knight, great, great player. This is, Sellers was a Sellers was a bad man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I feel like I, I trust Sellers a little bit more in that matchup. And maybe not in terms yeah. of scoring. Like Travis would probably end up scoring more points, but like 
it would it would really have to work for him. And then Kurt yeah. King, I guess yeah, Kurt King is almost surely probably going to wind up being guarded by by uh, Scott Burrell. So I guess you know I guess however you want to divvy up the other three, I guess you can kind of see. I mean you know Chris uh, Tate. You know, whatever you, you you can maybe some one of some combination of those two on Sheffer and Allen maybe have Hennefeld kind of switch between Rudy Johnson and then the and uh, and Ray Allen as needed. It, it, I guess yeah. Cal, either version of Calhoun would have plenty of options in this kind of matchup because um, yeah, ninety six has a size match advantage, but it's not like a huge advantage. Like athletic athleticism wise, I, I think actually ninety has the advantage overall. So I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, I think that's fair. But, you know, if, if Sheffer's able to get the ball into to Knight and King, who will have, you know, if we're if we're talking Knight on Sellers, then it's a three-inch advantage, and uh, King on Burrell will have two inches there. And, you know, all, all four guys, great players. And, uh, you know, for Knight and King, were really, you know, they, they weren't, like, heavy scorers on this team, but, you know, almost 10 points per game each. And, you know, if they have that kind of advantage and they're able to, you know, to get to the rim, they should be able to both get to double digits in that situation yeah and well and also 90 has a couple of other options to go with it just to mix things up like for instance if travis knight's size becomes a problem they do have stan Sarulik available off the bench and i mean that guy he came up big against some real big uh you know forwards you know that along that season so i mean obviously not yeah. as prolific a player but i mean if you need to have someone bang with Travis Knight for a few minutes to deal with a couple of other matchup issues. You know, Cerula could be valuable there. And then, you know, as far as like the subs, Lyman DePriest, Murray Williams, and Torino Walker are all between 6'5 and 6'7. And for all intents and purposes, are kind of interchangeable for like for the roles that they would be needing. So no matter what, you 90 has super athletic like guys coming off the bench, you know, at all times. 90, 96, I don't know if they're quite as deep. So it would be one one way that 90 could possibly win this is to basically just turn it into a track meet. I don't know if 96 is necessarily has the horses to keep up if if 90 is just like pressing them the whole game as they often did. And I mean, we saw it, it, it worked against great teams. So, you know, and these, te- these teams are like close enough in time frame where like the style of basketball is kind of similar too. So... Yeah, it'd be interesting to see just how that would play out. What do you What do you think of that possibility? Yeah, I think ninety has a bit of a, a depth advantage for for sure. But I'm also, yeah, you know, I'm I'm not worried about the three guys who would be rotating in for ninety six when you've got Rashmel Jones, Ricky Moore, and Eric Hayward. Obviously, Jones and Moore aren't the players that they would go on to be. But you know, we talked about you know Ricky Moore is good for a great game on on any day when uh, when he comes in in ninety six and. Rashmel Jones is, you know, is another one of those big guards and a guy who can be reliable defensively, um, a guy who can get you some points, and uh, you know Moore can, you know, move the ball around really well, also, and you know Hayward gives you another guy who can stretch the floor as a, you know, as a three, um, maybe a small four if you need him to for a little bit, but um, yeah, I think the the guys coming in off the bench are definitely quality from '96 as well, and if you need to. You know, if you need to rotate things around and you know stay in that track meet, there are, there's a worse combination of guys who can come in for sure. Definitely. So one one thing I advantage I feel like ninety has uh, is like so Ray Allen is their top guy, ninety uh, six's top guy, and so if you want to stop ninety six, one of the easiest way, well in theory, one of the most straightforward ways to do it is to simply try to slow him down because then the guys behind him, you know, after Sheffer, generally not quite as great scores. 
90, that's not the case. You have six guys who average eight points or more. I feel like I should probably mention John Gwynn here. He averaged over 10 points a game, and he was certainly, he's only six feet, so he'd have a, he'd have a size disadvantage no matter who he's guarding, but like, he's he's going to be a factor that 96 would have to deal with. So, you know, overall, like up and down the lineup, you know, 90, the 90 team has a lot of guys who can deal the ball, who can distribute, a lot of guys who can rebound, a lot of guys who can score. So, versatility wise that team it has i guess more like there's there's more puzzle pieces available that could assemble a winning picture um and i i guess as far you know so we we talk about ray allen how does 90 deal with ray allen how does 96 deal with chris smith a guy who could also score the ball in bunches also a great three-point shooter could distribute what's uh kind of what's 96's plan on him um i'm putting either ray allen or drone sheffer on him uh obviously but you know, I think that you know either one of those guys would be able to to lock him down, and you know if you lock him down, then you know I think you've got a good good chance of taking ninety completely out of this game. I think Chris Chris Smith, if you're listening, I just want to go on the record as saying I disagree with everything you just said. That ain't happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's I mean no, it'll, it'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, it just really quickly going back to something you said about you know Ray Allen being the you know, being the the scorer on this team, I think when it comes to when it comes to ninety six, look, both of these teams have excellent scorers on them. Um, you know, the the ninety team was a little more balanced with its scoring, but it also scored less than the than the ninety six team. And obviously, of course, Allen's twenty three and a half points per game certainly helps that. But I think that they were good enough where if you know Allen's scoring, say. Know, between 19 and 22 points per game instead of 23 or if he's scoring yeah if he's scoring like 18 19 points per game you know then it's probably because you know Sheffer's scoring a few more points or they're getting King or Knight more involved at the rim I mean the the points would come from somewhere even if they weren't necessarily coming from Ray Allen that's fair uh, as far as like the you know the difference in their offensive production it's not that far off I mean the uh, 96 team averaged 82 points per game the 90 team averaged 79, so it's yeah. not like it's that big a difference. And in terms of their uh, their defense, too, I, let me just pull this up here. Also very similar, actually. Uh, 96 averaged um, uh, 64.7 points allowed per game, and uh, the 90 team averaged 66.1. I would be – I don't have this available right now, but I'd be interested in seeing how many, like – possessions per game 90 played i suspect it's way more because <laughs> they they played fast i mean yeah so i i guess in that respect maybe that like helps the defense argument but hurts the offense argument because yeah maybe they're not scoring as many points per, per possession probably I would, right. I would think but i mean that's just a simple matter of style like how i guess it's what we would just have to see kind of who kind of plays whose game in that particular matchup and you know just one one more thing on on smith even if even if yeah say like ray allen or whoever did kind of take chris out of the game and he only had like six or seven points well the other guys are going to pick up the slack that's the whole that's like literally the whole point they did that all the time so you know if 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 you slow down chris smith well tate george is probably going to go for maybe 17 now and maybe also scott burrell will have like 11 and you know, so on and so forth until next thing you know, they've got like 80, they got like eighty points anyway. It just it's always worked out that way for them, even in the games they lost. Usually, I mean, really, if you look at their 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 record, like they only really had like one really bad game. That game they lost to to St. John's. Otherwise, they were generally pretty competitive. Like you know, their loss to Syracuse was only by four points. You know, they're okay. Their loss their their loss to Georgetown in the regular season was also by twenty. So I guess. 
you know, whatever it is. They, generally speaking, they were pretty much competitive against almost everybody, especially as the season went on. But either way, you know, went to overtime against a pretty good Duke team, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, look, the, both these teams are, are so good. They're so, like, I'd say they're pretty close to evenly matched. This is like, this would be just such a ridiculous game. I mean, this would be so fun. Like when we talk about all these games that we've put together and like the, the fun hypotheticals, I don't, I don't know if there are better matchups than 96 versus 90. I mean, in terms of styles, it would be the most entertaining game by far. I think like the, uh, you know, 2006 versus 94 would basically just be like watching like Brock Lesnar and just like, like smash Brock Lesnar's clone, you know, just just like two, (laughs) just huge guys just smashing, just smashing each other. Like, you know, heavyweights. Whereas this one is a little bit more like, I don't know, pick, pick, pick a better example of just like the style, the the speed, the athleticism, you probably have a lot of dunks. You have a lot of good shooting and you'd be able to watch and just be like, yo, I'm watching Ray Allen just like go to town. Like, what is this? You know, it's, you'd have all, all kind of, you'd have a lot working for you. And the best part is like these two teams, like were both awesome down the stretch. I mean, really with the exception of, you know, the, the Mississippi state game in the sweet 16, the 96 team was nails, like all throughout, the, yeah. all throughout the second half of the season. And, you know, the 90 team, they, they kind of had their worst moments early on too. And then they really, I mean, it, it took, it took like, like a real, like an all time great college basketball shot to knock them out. One that was almost immediately overshadowed by Leitner's other, you know, crazy <laughs> shot against Kentucky a couple of years later, but still like that was a big, that was a big, big, big time shot he made. Yeah. Yeah. Man, what, the most hateable player in college basketball, arguably ever. Like that, going back to that 1999 celebration. Like I just remember one of the loudest times I've ever heard Gamble was when Calhoun mentioned that Leitner shot, and the entire place booed, and it just you know, it echoed throughout throughout Gamble. It was like I mean, ugh, I mean, I wasn't even alive, and it pisses me off. We're we're far enough out. It's been 30 years. I, I think we have to at least acknowledge that Leitner was a bad dude, right? Like, yeah, he was incredible. <laughs> He was amazing. He was also like, yeah, I mean, 30 years later, people are still like, yeah, screw that guy. But yeah, whatever. It's, it's good. He's a great college player. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Any, any, any other thoughts before we, uh, we wrap this up? Uh, just that I would pay a lot of money for a ticket to this game. Oh, I, mean, I would, it would be, it would be amazing. It, yeah. It would be so good. All right. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's do this. Uh, I guess, um, is it, I I've you've gone first most of the time, so let me let me go first, uh, and uh, we'll we'll just sort of see how this uh, this goes. I'll, um, I'm sure you have more to say this week than last week. I have a lot more to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I so whereas 2003, like the idea of conceiving of an argument against 2009, I just couldn't do it, like in good faith. I I legitimately do. So it's funny as a 10 seed, like I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of UConn teams that are objectively better or more talented or more successful than this team was. But I actually think the 90 team could probably beat any of them. And, you know, if they actually like showed up on the court, I mean, they had, Here, you know what? Let's let, let me, let's... I was going to say, tell me more about it yeah. in, uh, in 60 seconds. All right. Count me in. All right. In three, two, one. All right. So as far as just like competitiveness, I, I don't think we, UConn's ever had a team quite like this one. I mean, these guys, they like would full court press the whole game. That's hard. They they had the athletes to do it, and they 
they just had they just had balls, man. I mean, you 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 talk about like guys who could step onto any court against any team. This team, UConn had no like pedigree. They had no clout, and they just they they built it all. Like UConn basketball was built on the backs of the Dream Season team, and these guys, I mean, that the heart that they had and the heart that they showed this season was really evident throughout. You know, winning that game against St. John's at Campbell Pavilion, amazing. The St. John's and Georgetown wins, amazing. You know, the the Clemson game, they almost let it slip away, and they came up with like one of the greatest shots in college basketball history. You know, you have athleticism, you have shooting talent. You you want to talk about just like a team that's aged well? I mean, I've said it so many times. This team is it. Uh, this this team is just so amazing, and I would put them up against anybody in UConn history. Amazing. Yeah, I yeah. Go, right, all right. Well, well, tell me. Well, tell me a little bit about '96 because uh, I think you have a compelling case to make here too. All right. Whenever you're ready. All right. In three, two, one, go. All right, well, 96 didn't have the opening of Gamble Pavilion. It didn't have, you know, the program-defining wins early on like the 90 Dream Team had. They didn't have the Tate George shot, but they had unbelievable talent. One of the best seasons in Big East history from Ray Allen, a guy who clearly could just hit any shot he wanted. Just ask Allen Iverson in the big championship game. This was a dominant, dominant team that didn't really have to worry about, you know, only playing eight players or only having two guys averaging over 10 points per game. They ran through everybody. Three losses the entire season. An overtime loss to a top 10 team early on. A loss to a top 10 team on the road late in the Big East season. And other than that, just crushed everybody. This was a team that could be inside, could be outside. They were bigger than you. They were tougher than you. And I'm speaking directly to the 1990 team because I think that this team would be a, it would be a great game, but the 96 team has the matchup. And time. All right. Well, give me 30 seconds and uh, let's, let's go. All right. In three, two, one. So I have to say the 96 team really impressed me looking over their numbers. They're, they're, they really are fantastic. However, I, I do have to say I am concerned about how well they would keep up with a team as deep and as athletic as the 90 UConn team was. You know, Ray, Ray Allen, look, he's, he's amazing. I, we, we don't need to get into that. But just like if Ray Allen isn't able to score 30 points against the 90 team, I don't know if the rest of the team is able to keep up. Like this team... They're they were just that good. All right. All right. Tell me what you tell me what you got. Three, two, one, go. If Ray Allen's not having a thirty point night, that's okay because Jerome Sheffer proved in nineteen ninety six that he can be a scorer as well as a distributor, and he would be able to distribute the ball to some bigs who had a huge size advantage. You know, granted, as tough as Sellers and Burrell were, you know, you can't coach height and. Travis Knight, Kurt King, they were both solid scorers, and I think against a team that had they have a height advantage against, like they did against ninety, you know, they'd be able to step up and make up for any points Allen didn't have. Time, man, you know it's been a you know Tim, have we had very many like debates where like it's like a legitimate debate? <laughs> no. We've had clear-cut winners, and I think that's reflected in the polls. Um, I think what what's the closest one that we've had? I think it was like something in the like sixties to thirties, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, I I, I think ninety-five versus two thousand fourteen. I think was the closest we've had. That one was yeah. uh, what was that one? Um, 
yeah, 61 to 39. And then the uh, 98 2002 one was like reasonably close to that was 66 to 34. But like, even still, like, this is yeah, I genuinely do not know what to expect here. I I think this will be really fascinating. And I think it tells me, you know what I I expect too. like, this is going to be the rest of this tournament's going to be really fun. Because now that we've like, kind of gotten into kind of we're gonna we're almost to the second round. And so just to recap, like, the, the, the quarterfinals matchups are going to be 1999 versus 95, which is going to be a banger. <laughs> <laughs> you have 1998 versus 2011, which I think actually is like a sneaky great one, too. Yeah. 2006 versus 2009, which may like open up a black hole and swallow <laughs> up the planet. That one's going to break me. I can't believe. Yeah, that I'm so glad that that's going to be a matchup. That's so fun. <laughs> And then uh, the winner of this one versus, um, well, next week's matchup is 2004 versus 2016. So uh, we, I think we can reasonably project a, a favorite there. So, you know, that's going to be a good one too, regardless. So we have, we have uh, some... Someone, fun- come in, someone could come in with a deep heave with 0.8 seconds left and throw the whole matchup over, turn it on its head. It's possible. I mean, yeah. It, it, yeah. I don't know. Do you think the 2014 is going to be the the 2016 Cincinnati of this bracket? Oh my gosh, probably not. I feel like we should probably put a little bit more respect on Mick Cronin's name now that he's like a Final yeah, Four yeah. coach. It, it turns out the problem was Cincinnati all along. Who knew? Yeah, who would have thought? <laughs> so funny. All right, guys. Well, yeah. So you guys, we, we've we've made our cases, and now we leave it to you, the listeners, to decide which of these teams would um, win a hypothetical matchup do you guys feel like it would be 1996 or 1990 and uh yeah well we will have pull the poll open um it'll be on, on my twitter at max cerullo we'll have the, the poll open uh sometime this morning you'll this is uh you'll be hearing this on tuesday so i'll have that poll up and we'll have voting open until friday so plenty of time to vote we'll see how it goes um hope hope to see some uh, lively debate if, uh, I know I know members of the 90 team are very involved, so if you guys all want to weigh in and tell Tim just what you think about his blatant disrespect to your greatness, feel free. Be, be fun I to... love you guys. I love you so much, 90 team. I may not have been alive, but you're a part of the reason why I became such a huge UConn fan. Yeah, just I, remember that. <laughs> I think it's I think it's really important to stress that we love both of these teams. It's just yes. be very fun to kind of see how this would play out. Um, so yeah, so you guys all make sure you vote and. Um, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll leave it there. So we'll be back next week for our final first round matchup between the number two seed 2004 team and the number 15 seeded 2016 team. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll rock and roll from there. So like I said, follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo. It's M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. You can email us at yesuconpodcast at gmail.com and uh, you know leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts that helps us out in those uh, search results and everything. So, um, Tim, happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day for all of you guys as well. Hope the, you had, you enjoyed it despite the, the rainy, crappy New England conditions we had. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's it. We'll, we'll talk to you all later. <laughs>